Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22, if you would. Matthew 22. We have begun last week a series on Matthew 24, the return of the king. And we are taking time to kind of see the chapters leading up to Matthew 24. So last week we looked at Matthew 21. Today we're going to look at Matthew 22 and 23, and that'll take us right up to where we want to be for Matthew 24. Last week, as we looked at Matthew 21, we saw Jesus' arrival as king. And he came in and we saw the cleansing of the temple. We saw the fig tree being cursed. Both of those had to do with inspection and seeing that there was no fruit. We saw the parable of the tenants, the idea that that God was sending his messengers, but those messengers were rejected and killed. And now finally he sent the son and the son also will be killed. And what this is focusing on is Israel's response to what Jesus has been saying. And their response, embodied in the religious leaders, is that of rejecting him. And there will be judgment for that. So today, as we look at Matthew 22 and 23, we're going to see the terminal generation. And the reason that I say that is the terminal as in this is where it ends. The, the, the Jewish age is now coming to an end. All of the, the curses, all of the, uh, the threats, the warnings that Jesus has been giving, it's all now going to fall on this generation. God's patience is at an end with the nation of Israel as he has sent to them his Messiah and they are rejecting him. And so Jesus' teaching here reaches a climax in these chapters in this kind of confrontation with the religious leaders. And it's going to lead to his final announcement then of judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple, the nation of Israel. So let's jump right in, Matthew 22, and the first 14 verses are the parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. Being invited to the wedding feast of the crown prince would be a huge honor. And this is a royal summons, not just a wedding invitation. Those who are invited don't come, not because they couldn't, 
but because they wouldn't. It's simply their choice. In 2017, the North Carolina Tar Heels won the men's basketball championship and they were invited to the White House. They refused the invitation. Now, publicly, it was stated that this was for scheduling reasons, but everybody knew that wasn't really what was going on. Their coach had been outspoken against President Trump, and this was a political statement. Refusing the invitation here in, to the wedding is a political statement. It is a statement of rejection of the king. And the invitees actually attack and murder even the ones who bring the invitation. That's what Israel has done through the years to the prophets that God has sent to them. And note the king's response. He's angry. So what does he do? He sends an army. He destroys the rebels who won't come, and he burns their city. Well, guess what? Jesus tells that story because that's exactly what's about to happen to Jerusalem. In AD 70, an army is going to come, is going to kill those who are left in the city, and is going to destroy the city with fire. So instead, the king gathers other people to the party. And then we have this kind of second part to the story where out of those who actually come in to the celebration, there's one who doesn't have the proper clothes and the king throws him out. What does it mean to have the proper clothes? Well, this is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you refuse to put on the clothes, then you are saying that you don't truly want to be part of the celebration. You may show up as if you belong Sunday by Sunday, for example, but if you're not actually dressed in wedding clothes, if you're not actually dressed in the righteousness of Christ, then you really don't want to be part of the celebration. And the man without proper clothes, when the king talks to him, it says he's speechless. That's Romans 1, without excuse, nothing to say. And Jesus finishes by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. So this proclamation of the good news of the kingdom goes out through the whole world, but only those who are chosen respond in faith. That's what we call the doctrine of election. And so the question coming at the end of this story that I have is this, have you responded to the royal summons? And are you dressed for the wedding? That's a question every one of us needs to answer. Being here on a Sunday morning, being part of a church, saying out loud that you are a Christian having prayed a prayer at some point in your past, none of those, getting baptized, none of those things actually are what it takes to belong at the celebration. What it takes to belong at the celebration is having the righteousness of Christ. And that comes by faith in the Messiah, accepting him, embracing him, having loyalty to him. The next story then starts in verse 15, and this is the story about paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Nothing wrong with a little flattery, right, as you get started. Tell us then what you think. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So this particular tax, you had a certain coin that had to be used to pay this tax, and that coin was hated by devout Jews because it had Caesar's image on it. And not only that, it proclaimed that he was son of the divine Augustus. In other words, with the coin, Caesar was claiming to be the son of God. So you can understand why the Jews would hate that coin. The Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to trap Jesus. If they can get him to say that people should pay the tax, then the people will turn against him because they want someone, a Messiah, who's going to free them from the Romans. But if they get him to say that they should not pay the tax, then the power of Rome will come down and crush him as a revolutionary. For instance, not many years before this, a revolutionary named Judas the Galilean had done just that. He had led a tax revolt and he was crushed by Rome. But Jesus gives this answer that kind of threads the needle and doesn't say either, but that's not all he's doing. He's got two kind of big points that he's making. First of all, when Jesus asks them for a coin, he's demonstrating to the public that these religious leaders have made their choice. Jesus is standing there and he says, well, I don't have one of those coins. So one of you that has one of those coins, why don't you hand it to me? So the religious leaders who have the coin show him the coin. So he's pointing out that they've already chosen their side. It would be like one of the, one of the senators that was recently elected after the, the last election in, you know, in the runoff in Georgia is uh, John Ossoff. He's publicly criticized Apple for their abusive practices and, and for profiting from abusive practices. But investigators have found that he actually holds millions of dollars in Apple stock. That's what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. He's showing that that they're publicly, kind of with their words, siding with the people. You know, should we really be paying our taxes to Rome? But they've already made their choice. They've sided with Rome themselves. He's revealing their hypocrisy. Think about what the Jews say at Jesus' trial, John 19. We have no king but Caesar. They've made their choice. They've rejected Jesus. They've embraced Caesar. And when Jesus says that they should give to God what belongs to God, how would they know what belongs to God? Well, we know the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. So what bears God's image? Every single person standing there bears God's image. So they themselves entirely, completely should be given to God. In the Roman world, in certain situations, people were required to swear a loyalty oath, put a pinch of incense on the altar and say that Caesar is Lord. And those who refused ran the risk of being killed. And in that world, the followers of Jesus, the early church, proclaimed 
Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So the question for us, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? It's easy to say that Jesus is Lord on Sunday morning when we're gathered with like-minded people. But on Monday morning at work, throughout the rest of your life, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? Who claims authority in your life? Where does your allegiance ultimately lie? Matthew 22:23. now. And here we have the Sadducees. And by the way, notice at each point, it's like we've got different groups coming to Jesus and trying to trick him. Okay, now it's the Sadducees' turn. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so they give this favorite little puzzle to Jesus about whose wife this woman would be in the afterlife. And their puzzle is designed to show how silly it is to believe in the resurrection. And Jesus tells them that this is one of the things that's going to be different about resurrection life. We will be like the angels, not that you'll turn into an angel. We'll be like the angels in that marriage is done away with. You won't be married. You won't have those kinds of relationships in heaven. Okay? Human marriage was always intended to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. But what we read is that in eternity, the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs. There's this consummation of, that, uh, of those promises that Christ and his church are now together forever. And so what human marriage was always pointing to has now been fulfilled. So one of the purposes of marriage here on earth is procreation. In the resurrection, there's no more need for procreation. The Sadducees' question has to do with leveret marriage. Okay, the, the, the idea that according to the Old Testament law, if a man, a married man dies without children, his wife marries his brother. Why? So that the tribal family line would continue and so that she would be cared for. So this is about preserving the family of Abraham's descendants to whom the promises had been given. Think of the story of Ruth. When Ruth's husband died, she married Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. But before that marriage could happen, Boaz had to meet at the city gate with the closest relative and offer that that relative could marry Ruth if he so chose. 
So in front of the elders, the man refused the offer, and then Boaz was free to marry Ruth. That's an example of how the Leveret marriage system was supposed to work. It was taking care of widows, and it was preserving the tribal family line. But now, in Jesus, the promises were being fulfilled. And as the Jewish people were rejecting the Messiah, the promises and the kingdom were being given to a new people, those who would follow Jesus. These are the true children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. So the need to preserve a physical tribal family line is being done away with. The true family of Abraham is those who have faith. Physical Israel, ethnic Israel's time is coming to an end. It's the end of that age. So Jesus answers the Sadducees by saying that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they died long ago. They will rise again to enjoy the renewed world that God will make along with their true descendants, all those who are of faith. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, we have now this commentary on the great commandment. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so now we have this lawyer who tests Jesus with a question about the commandments. The Pharisees had 613 laws they had identified from the Old Testament law. And they argued about which one was the greatest of the bunch. And so here's what you need to understand about Jesus' answer, just briefly. First of all, all the other commandments fit under these two. Love God, love others. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love others the way that you love yourself, then you will naturally keep all the rest of the commandments. But second, think about it this way. Jesus' death and resurrection, which is just days away at this point, are the means by which Jesus ultimately fulfills both of these two commandments. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we continue on through this whole section. In his death and resurrection, Jesus is loving God supremely with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in doing that, he's loving others. He's sacrificing for them. Verse 41 now of Matthew 22. And this is a, a, a kind of tricky, complicated thing. I'm going to try to explain it for you. <clears throat> this has to do with David's son and David's Lord. All right. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. So that, just to pause here, they're, they're talking about royal descent, the Messiah, who's going to be Israel's greatest king, has to be descended from Israel's past greatest king, David. So they're waiting for someone who is descended from David. So that's whose son the Messiah has to be in that sense. 
He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, the Messiah, Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him more questions. So as these chapters unfold, it's kind of like a high stakes sports match where there's this intense back and forth. And in this argument, Jesus is like the star who makes the great comeback that seemed impossible. At each point, it seems like, oh, how is he possibly going to get out of that? Each question is a gotcha question. <clears throat> Last Sunday night, Packers played the 49ers. I don't know if any of you caught the end of that game. But in the final minute, the 49ers scored to go up by one point. So Aaron Rodgers, Packers quarterback, gets the ball back with 37 seconds, makes a couple of great throws, marches his team down the field, puts them in field goal range, they kick a field goal and win the game. And how many times has he done that? He's not the only one, but he's one of the great ones. Jesus here is in impossible dilemma after impossible dilemma, question after question, situation after situation, yet he's absolutely in control of the situation. When it looks like there's no way that Jesus can get himself out, he does. And here, he does it by asking them a question, and he takes the prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 110 and applies it to himself. I want you to see this, so turn back in your Bible to Psalm 110. Okay, Psalm 110. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Psalm 110. Now let me just give you a word of explanation as we read this. You're going to see the word Lord written two different ways in this psalm. Sometimes it's written in all capital letters, so capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes it's written just with a capital L and lowercase o-r-d. When it's all caps, that's replacing the word Yahweh. That's the covenant God of Israel that you're speaking about. When it's just got the L capitalized, then it's more of a title of a human. It's not talking about Yahweh. And in this case, it's talking about the Messiah, the king. Okay? So keep that in mind as you read. Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, <clears throat> says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So this is now talking about how Yahweh sends the Lord the Messiah, and sets up his rule. Okay, that verse one is an enthronement. All right, verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking about the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, the Messiah, 
Now, this is speaking more broadly to the people. The Lord is at your, or at speaking, it's directed to Yahweh. It's speaking to the people. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So you have this picture here of the Messiah who's going to be a victorious king who's going to defeat his enemies. And when Jesus comes, we know that he defeats the enemies of sin and death. After Jesus' death and resurrection, you see that that was precisely the way in which Jesus is fulfilling those two great commandments, loving God, loving others. And it's the way in which he's being enthroned as both David's son, the true king of Israel, and David's master. David calls him Lord. So Jesus explains the mystery of Psalm 110. How can the Messiah, the royal king of Israel, be both David's descendant and David's Lord? <clears throat> and the reality is it's because it's the son of God himself who has come as a descendant of David, but he's the divine one. Psalm 110 verse 4 <clears throat> says that the messianic king will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek shows up briefly with Abraham in the Old Testament. He's a priest, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Melchizedek is a priest, <clears throat> but he's different than everybody else that shows up in the Old Testament because there's no genealogy. We don't get any idea of where he's coming from. Usually you get, so, you know, you get introduced to this person, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, or this person from such and such a place. <clears throat> Melchizedek doesn't have any genealogy. He has no origin story, so to speak. And Hebrews explains that since Melchizedek is without genealogy, his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Now, Aaron's family has served Israel in the temple down through the years and is currently serving there as Jesus is encountering these religious leaders in the temple. Okay? So if according to Psalm 110, the Messiah will be not only the king, but also a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that means the Messiah will replace the priesthood of Aaron's descendants that currently serve in the temple. He will take over the temple himself. So Jesus is not only David's son, royal descent, but David's Lord, he claims authority over the temple, He's the great priest king of Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 is that enthronement scene. The Messiah takes his throne as king. That establishes him as the rightful judge. He's come as king and judge and prophet and priest. He's inspected the temple and the nation of Israel. And there is no fruit. So judgment is about to fall. And he is the one who is able to judge and able to give the verdict and able to carry out that judgment. 
And that leads us then to what we find in chapter 23, the woes that are pronounced on the religious leaders and the judgment on Jerusalem and the temple that we see in Matthew 24. So let's jump into Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you, love, you have one another, excuse me, you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That section is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are hypocrites. That'll be the controlling image through this whole chapter. What they say is good for the most part, but what they do is not good. They're proud. You're supposed to be humble, Jesus tells his disciples. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give a series of seven woes. Woe means alas, grief. It's a denunciation. And there are seven woes because seven is the number of perfection or completion. And Israel, represented here by her religious leaders, has filled up the full measure of their sin and hypocrisy, and judgment is now going to fall on them. The woes, the warnings are complete because this is the end. They're rejecting Jesus, and that act will be the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, on their judgment. So let's go through these woes, and they're not difficult to understand. First of all, verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's been summoning people to enter the kingdom. But the scribes and the Pharisees, according to Jesus, number one, are not in the kingdom themselves, and number two, are shutting the kingdom in people's faces. In other words, if you follow them, you're following them to judgment not into the kingdom of God. They were supposed to be Israel's shepherds, but they've led Israel astray. We move on then to verse 15. And if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that there is no verse 14. There's differences in the manuscripts. The better judgment here, I think, is that there, what, what is there in verse 14 isn't really part of this. That's probably something added that Jesus had said at other times. So it's legitimate, but your Bible probably doesn't have a verse 14. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The Pharisees are seeking to get everyone to follow their lead. But Jesus says, what you're actually converting them to is hell. It's like the story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin leading the children away. Verse 16, 
Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So they're placing higher worth on the objects that human beings have brought into God's presence than on God's presence itself. Their focus is on the outward things. Just like when Jesus examined the fig tree, it was leafy and green, but it didn't actually have any fruit. And when Jesus came to examine the temple, it was apparently functioning as it should, but upon closer inspection, there was no fruit. The fourth woe, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So they're all worried about the details of the ceremonial law, But they've missed the bigger things that the law was pointing to all along. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. The fifth woe, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Pharisees are concerned about what things look like on the outside, But on the inside, Jesus says, they're actually dirty. Aesop told the story of the fox and the woodsman. The fox was injured in the forest and he's running away from hunters and he comes upon the woodsman and he asks the woodsman for help in hiding. And so the fox runs into a bush and hides under the bush. And the woodsman, when the hunters come along, the hunters say, have you seen the fox? And the woodsman says, no, I haven't seen the fox. But while he's saying no, he's pointing to the bush. Now, the hunters didn't catch his signal, and they ride on. And when the fox comes out, the fox scolds the woodsman because of his hypocrisy. It's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here with the Pharisees. They're saying one thing with their words on the outside, but the inner reality is entirely different. They are hypocrites. The sixth woe, starting in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, they're neat and clean on the outside, but inside they're not just dirty, they're full of death. And lawlessness, dead things, according to the law, are unclean. And Jesus is saying that they're actually breaking the law and opposing what the law is all about. Now, before we move on to the final woe, let me just pause and ask you the question. Consider the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. How do you measure up? It's easy for us to read these words and recognize the hypocrisy of the Pharisees But when each of us examines our own life, what are we more concerned with? 
Are we more concerned with the outside and what people think of us? Or are we more concerned with inner holiness? Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a question we need to be asking. The seventh woe then begins in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The scribes and the Pharisees say that they would have responded differently to the prophets than their fathers did. But Jesus says in saying that, they are identifying the prophet killers as their fathers. And they are just like their fathers. And now they are filling up the measure of their father's sin. God has been patient with Israel over and over and over through the years, even while they rejected the prophets. But now this generation is filling up to the top the measure of the sins that their fathers began. And the reason that this generation is filling it up is because they are not just rejecting the prophets, they are rejecting Jesus himself. And so when the measure of the sins are filled up, that means that God's patience is finished and judgment is about to fall. In the Old Testament, when Israel was coming into the land that, where, for instance, where the Amorites were, it says the sins of the Amorites were filled up. So God used Israel to come in to judge the Amorites while he was giving Israel the land. In the same way, now it's Israel whose sins are filled up and judgment is about to fall on them. And Jesus says that all the righteous blood on earth will come on them. They will experience judgment for all the righteous blood that has been shed by the prophets and in a few short days by Jesus himself. And think about what it is that they say. In that last day before Jesus is crucified, Pilate says, look, I, I wash my hands of this whole thing. His blood's not going to be on my hands. What do they say? His blood be upon us and our children. This generation. Them and their children. That's the generation upon whom judgment will fall. Verse 36, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, we're going to finish Matthew 23 t today, but before we do that, we need to take a detour. And I want to talk about Matthew's story of Israel. Let's zoom out for a minute. Each of the gospel writers is telling the same story. It's the story of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his, re you know, his ascension. But they all do it with different details, and their intent is to show us different things. So what is Matthew doing? 
Matthew is telling the story of Israel coming to its conclusion in Jesus. In fact, go ahead and glance back at Matthew 1. I want you to see how this whole thing began. You know those memes that are online, how it began, how it's going? Okay, we've been talking about how it's going. Now we're going back to the how it began. Matthew 1. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's as far back as it goes. Now, if you were to go over to Luke, you would see that Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew doesn't do that. Why? He's starting with Abraham because he's telling the story of Israel. This gospel is about Israel and Israel's response to Jesus, their Messiah. So what Matthew is doing is he's, he's taking the story of Jesus and he's connecting it on to the longer story that's been going on, the story of Israel. And he's saying the story of Israel is coming to its conclusion now in Jesus. Matthew has three sections of his genealogy and you can see them there if you glance at it, but we'll just look at the summary verse down in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, we call that the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Messiah, 14 generations. So you have three sections and you have three markers before you get to Jesus. You have Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. Abraham is the beginning of Israel and Jesus will be the true Israel. David is Israel's so far greatest king. Jesus is going to be great David's greater son, the true ultimate king of Israel. The exile was their being taken out of the land and no longer having the presence of God. And the understanding by many was that they were still in Jesus' day in spiritual exile waiting for God. And Jesus is going to be the answer to exile. He is the presence of God returning to his people. So Matthew's focus is on the story of Israel. But the way that Matthew structures his gospel is important. Some people have observed that it's, it's like Matthew takes the gospel of Mark and then he takes five teaching blocks of Jesus and inserts them into that gospel. It's kind of how, what he does. He's got other changes too. But roughly, that's how you can think of it. So he's got these five teaching blocks that are like extended times where Jesus is teaching. The first teaching block, Matthew 5 through 7, is the Sermon on the Mount. The last teaching block is Matthew 23 to 25, where we are, that begins with the woe and continues on with Matthew 24 and the announcement of judgment on Jerusalem and the temple. Now, that structure, kind of hold that in your mind and go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Okay, flip back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 27. I'm not going to show you details. I just want you to see the kind of big picture here. Deuteronomy 27, and I'll just skim through here through chapter 30. So as you, go, as you come to Deuteronomy 27, remember, this is the last of the five books of the Pentateuch. This is the, the end of Moses' ministry to the people. This is right before they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Okay? So uh, you have an altar that's set up and you have curses that are given from the mountain. 
If you disobey, here's the curses. That's chapter 27. Chapter 28, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Okay, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. When you get to chapter 29, it's the covenant restated or renewed. Okay, so for instance, verse one, these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And so 29 details the covenant. Then chapter 30 is kind of basically saying, you're going to break this covenant. So here's what's going to happen. If you repent, there will be forgiveness. Okay, when the curses come on you, God is patient. And if you repent, there will be forgiveness. And so at the end of 30, Moses says, I'm laying out for you a choice. It's a choice between life and death, between good and evil, between blessings and cursings. And so the whole thing is this blessing cursing motif. What is it that Matthew does in his gospel? The Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who, blessed are the, blessed are those who, lays out all the blessings. Jesus is inviting them to respond to him, to repent, to receive blessing. But through the course of his ministry, they don't do that. And so what comes at the end in the last teaching block, what we just read, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, curses. They've made their choice. If you're still there in Deuteronomy, look at what happens next. This is now the transfer. Uh, Moses transfers things over to Joshua. And what does he do? You've got Joshua is going to be the next leader. They read the law. Joshua is commissioned. He's going to be the one who's going to lead now. Moses sings this song that kind of recounts all that God has done. You come over to uh, chapter 33. Moses gives this one last blessing on the people of Israel. And then what does Moses do? Verse 34. Moses went up, or chapter 34, verse 1. Moses went up from the plains of Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. God showed him all the land, okay, the promised land, and then Moses dies. God buries him. Jesus, after his resurrection, goes up the mountain and departs leaving his people with the commission now to go in and to possess the land. Just like Israel going into the promised land, only now, this time, it's not just the land of Israel, it's the whole world. Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's been enthroned, Psalm 110. Go, therefore, you're being commissioned. Now you go and make disciples of all nations, the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's telling us, that the same choices faced the people in Jesus' day as in Moses' day. Obedience, 
or disobedience, blessing or curses. Those who obey and receive blessing are the true children of Abraham. And those upon whom the curses are about to fall are those of the house of Israel who do not accept their Messiah. Now, at the same time, there are Gentiles that are brought in. And Matthew shows you this the whole way through his gospel. Right at the beginning, you've got wise men from the east. At the end, you've got a centurion who believes. In the middle, you've got a Canaanite woman. I want you to see this. This is just kind of interesting to see, okay? Matthew 15. Turn to Matthew 15. The Canaanite woman. Matthew 15. <clears throat> Hopefully this helps you see what Matthew's getting at. So Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. This is always one of those stories that's so confusing, the way that Jesus seems to treat this woman, all right? The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong part. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So first of all, notice she calls him son of David. She's recognizing his royal descent. She's identifying him as king. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay, so think about this. Who does Jesus say that he came to minister to, to save, to rescue, to heal? Those of the, the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How does he determine whether or not she fits in that group? Does he give her a DNA test? No. He says it's her faith. Her faith identifies her as someone who actually belongs to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he ministers to her. She belongs. It's like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And later in the same chapter, if you are Christ's, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now look at the end of Matthew 23. What does Jesus say? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Bear with me for a few more minutes. I'm going to take you a couple other places to help us understand what's happening here. So turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's speech. Stephen is a martyr, okay, and he's standing up and he's speaking. And he gives this long speech, and what he does is he recounts Israel's history all the way down to the false worship of the golden calf and the coming exile in Babylon. Okay, look at verse 43, uh, the very end of it. I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. But now I want to pick up in verse 44, and here's what you're going to see. This is going to tie together the idea of the temple, the guilt of Israel, and the enthronement of Jesus. Okay, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, that's the tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, so here you have the idea that God does not live in temples, which is important to establish for Stephen because the temple in Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Okay, your fathers killed the prophets. Does that sound familiar? You heard anyone saying anything like that recently? This has been Jesus' message. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So you have now killed the righteous one, Jesus. And this demonstrates how far you are from keeping the law. Just as Jesus said would happen, you killed him. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the Son of Man, Jesus, in heaven at the throne. He's ruling. He's been enthroned. When we get to the book of Revelation in the new year, I have no idea how long it's going to take us to get to chapter 18, but when we do, you will see that it's talking about Jerusalem. And listen to what is said here about this city. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Why is Jerusalem judged? Because they have rejected God, his messengers, and his son. And here in Matthew 23, go ahead and turn back there. 
Matthew 23, Jesus is lamenting the judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem. And he says, this is the one phrase I want to pull out. How often would I have gathered your children together? The word gather is the word synagogue. A synagogue is just a gathering. It's like the Jewish church. The New Testament churches called themselves synagogues, James chapter 2. In Deuteronomy 30, I won't make you turn back there, but I'm going to turn back there and read this to you. The first five verses. I want you to listen to what is said. Okay, remember, this was all the covenant blessings and curses, you know, now choose life, that whole thing. At the beginning of chapter 30, here's what it says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Okay, so the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. This is after they've been sent into exile. Okay, when God calls these things to mind, when, when you've been sent away, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. So when you return, and the return is returning to the Lord, it's repentance. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, may possess it. When Jesus says this in Matthew 23, he is saying that because Jerusalem has apostatized, they've, they've walked away, they've refused to be synagogued, gathered under Christ. Now their temple will be destroyed and a new synagogue or temple will be formed. And that happened beginning on the day of Pentecost as the spirit now comes to indwell not a physical temple, but the people of God, the church. If we were to go ahead in Matthew 24, we will get to this in a couple of weeks, but Matthew 24, verse 31, says this. Speaking of the coming of the Son of Man, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Angels. The translators have to decide how they're going to translate that word. It just means messengers. Sometimes it's talking about pastors. Sometimes it's talking about messengers. Sometimes it's talking about heavenly beings of angels. Here, I think it's just talking about messengers, the people of God that are sent out. The trumpet is, it's an announcement, announcing the kingdom of God. And they're sent out to gather, to synagogue, to gather together the people who will respond to Jesus. In other words, what that says there, he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That begins with the Great Commission and Jesus' disciples. It continues with you and me. We're doing that. We're announcing the kingdom and gathering the elect into the kingdom. That's the Great Commission. 
So Jesus' followers are sent out to gather his people. So the question here is, do you see your role as being a messenger gathering God's people? We've covered a lot of ground here in Matthew 22 and 23. Just look at the first two verses of chapter 24 so you can see how this leads to where we will be next week. Matthew 24. After this lament over Jerusalem, Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the conclusion, the climax of all that Jesus has been saying about Israel and the religious leaders. It's going to come now in Matthew 24 in this announcement of judgment. And it's judgment for their unbelief. It's the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and it will mean the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age. Judgment for Israel will mean blessing for the world as this new covenant era begins. But Matthew 24 is the announcement of the coming judgment. And in the next six weeks, we're going to look at that in detail. Let me just finish by saying this. One thing that should strike us as we go through these passages is the reality of judgment. And not only the reality of judgment, but the rightness of God's judgment. God's judgment comes and it comes in justice. It is right that God judges. And notice again, what is the dividing line? It's Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? That's the dividing line. Can you escape this judgment? Well, this judgment here, you're going to see in Matthew 24 that, that Jesus tells them exactly how to, to escape the judgment. He says, get out of the city. Go up into the hills. You'll escape the judgment. And the Christians did that. We'll talk about this, but the Christians left Jerusalem as that judgment approached, and they went to Pella. And the Christians escaped this judgment. It fell on non-believing Jews in Jerusalem. It destroyed the temple. But how do you escape judgment ultimately? Well, remember that story of the wedding feast. You've got to have the right clothes. How do you get the right clothes? It's the righteousness of Christ. Again, the dividing line is Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? Do you have faith in him? And if you have faith in him, are you living with him as Lord not Caesar, but Jesus as Lord. And if you're not, then you should probably realize that you're the person that the king is going to come to and say, why don't you have the right clothes? For those of us who are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, not by any good that we have done, but entirely from what he has done, his merit, by faith in Jesus, we also see in this what our calling is, to go and to share the good news of the kingdom to announce this to the world. So hopefully the reality and the rightness of the judgment that you see in this passage, falling on the terminal generation here of Jews, inspires you, encourages you to remember that God's judgment may fall at any time and that our role is to spread the good news. You can rejoice in Christ as Savior. You pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these passages. They are difficult, they are heavy, and yet they display to us so many important things to understand about the reality of coming judgment, about the rightness of that judgment, 
and also how to escape that judgment. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to deal with our sins and to give us his righteousness so that we can be dressed righteously as you come to look at us. I pray that we would be pushed, encouraged, reminded of our role in the Great Commission to go and tell people the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. May we be good ambassadors for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.